0: you want to get out your message outline, lots of white space this week for you to take those notes that you've been encouraged to take, and uh, so that's awesome. Uh, before we get started, a couple quick uh, prayer items. We have, uh, I believe it's 14 middle schoolers off at Majnik um, this weekend. Uh, Frank and some uh, intrepid volunteers have uh, gone off. Um, and uh, joined with hundreds of other middle schoolers from, uh, I don't know, lots and lots of churches um, all over the area, and they're at Mojnik Now, that's kingdom spelled backwards, and uh, they're having a great time learning cool stuff and um, keeping Frank awake. So we should probably uh, take a moment to pray for them. At the same time, as uh, Pat shared earlier, we know We have another hurricane coming through uh, Florida this time. Uh, They've not recovered from Harvey, um, which is in Texas, uh, talking to some friends there. They are still dealing with all of that. There is still lots of water and lots of damage. So we don't want to forget to pray uh, for those that have suffered from that flooding And yet we have uh, many friends and family, including some church family. We moved the horses a week ago to Tampa, which is going to get hit tonight. And they're there. Um, And so sometime between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., according to what I saw this morning, it's supposed to blow through Tampa and hopefully it leaves Tampa um, uh, in one piece. So uh, pray for them. Pray for all the people uh, down there that have not been able to leave and um, so we want to remember that. But real quick, let's uh, let's pray for all of our students at Majnik. That's sort of a different kind of a hurricane uh, going on. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Frank and for those who have volunteered uh, to go with him, and thank you for this great group of students who have gone. Um, uh, To Tomajnik this week. We pray they would learn uh, great truths from their speaker, Ben Robertson, uh, the RUF minister at William and Mary. Lord, we pray that you would bless him as he brings your word and that you, by the power of your spirit, would work in the hearts of our students. We ask that you would do that uh, for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Very good. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you want to open in your Bibles, and uh, if you get to the Gospels, go right. It's just past Romans. You'll get to 1 Corinthians. And we are going to read verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1 uh, today. So this is Paul's letter to a somewhat troubled church. And um, so it has a lot to say to the church today, I believe. So let's get after it. Uh, Please turn to 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the glory of Christ. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for our lives. Speak to us in this, your holy and inerrant word. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit to take up your word and wield it with power in our hearts to kill pride, to heal division, to establish our unity in Christ for the glory of your name. Thank you. 1 Corinthians is a love letter to an unlovely people, pointing them and us to our Redeemer, we need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Bring us the grace of repentance. Soften our hard hearts. Have mercy upon us. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So it appears uh, that in our society today. We are torn apart by deep divisions. It seems obvious not just from our deeply polarized political situation, but from virtually every measurement of our society's condition, uh, that we have massive divisions. You can check out the uh, latest crop of books on the state of our country, uh, all of the social commentators left and right, the futurists who are trying to determine where we're headed since no one seems to know, and virtually anything written by the political scientist Charles Murray. So we have his book called Coming Apart, as well as the book Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America by James Campbell, Tales of Two Americas by John Freeman, Deeply Divided by Doug McAdam, and at least four books with the title Divided America. Now, one of the mottos, the motto of our country is E Pluribus Unum, from the many one. That expresses an aspiration, a longing for unity. And yet, however far we've come as a society from our founding, I think we have to admit there are still profound divisions among us. We are a fragmented and divided people along lines of class and race and education and culture and economics and religion and politics and a hundred other things. Unity is the desire of our hearts, something we aspire to and long for, but it seems to be a perpetually elusive goal. And so it really shouldn't be all that much of a surprise to discover division and disunity is a problem that rears its ugly head Not just out there in the world, but from time to time in here, in the church. We have our own collection of books on the subject, including Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Divided by God by Noah Feldman. And there's little doubt that this is a problem to be addressed in Corinth. So far, we've seen Paul introducing himself and some of the major themes of his letter. But now, in verses 10 through 17, he begins to address the problems more directly. Paul is not known for being vague. He tends to uh, err on the side of being blunt. And up to now, it's generally been a very positive introduction But now he's responding to specific information that he's received about their particular problems. And that information has come to Paul in two different routes. Uh, When we get to chapter 7, we're going to see that Paul actually got a letter uh, from the Corinthians. And they asked for counsel on various points of controversy and confusion in their church. But if you look at verse 11, you'll notice that information has come by another route. Some of... Chloe's people. Presumably members of the Corinthian church have been with Paul and were eyewitnesses to the problems plaguing the church in Corinth. And so Paul is responding not just to this letter he's gotten from the church, but to uh, first-hand accounts of the issues in this church. And actually the book divides to I'm responding to the concerns from Chloe's people, and then starting in chapter 7, as to all the stuff you wrote me about. Apparently it's not all the same stuff. There's lots of issues, just as there's lots of perspectives, and uh, I can't help but think. I, I wrote this earlier uh, this week in the weekly email. Hopefully, you're getting that. Um, let me know if you're not. But I tried to imagine that worship service. You know, you come in, you take your seat there at the church in Corinth. One of the elders gets up, says, "Welcome. I'm so and so. Hey." We've received a letter from the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read it to you. And so he begins, verse one Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Sosthenes, our brother. And everyone smiles and nods. Paul's writing to us. Isn't that lovely? And Sosthenes, you remember him, he's working with Paul now. Isn't that great? And the letter goes on, and it's encouraging. And upbeat. And Paul's writing words of thanks to God concerning all that he sees God doing in their midst. And the elder keeps reading and everybody's smiling. And then you get to verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And a sudden chill steals through the room as every head turns to glare at Chloe and her household. And they're like looking at their shoes, you know, and sinking as low as they can into their chairs. It had to be pretty tense that morning in the church in Corinth. I mean, can you imagine? It would be like me coming up here next week and saying, now it has been reported to me that Mark Rist is a heretic. And I have to take it seriously because Frank Pugh said it. Now... Nothing like that has happened. Please don't start any rumors. (laughs) But I mean, if I said something like that seriously, after the shock wore off, I mean, pretty much everybody would start taking sides. That's what's happening in Corinth. Everybody's taking sides. Divisions are beginning to emerge, and it's emerging around people. And Paul's agenda in this letter... In other words, if we'll allow God's word to do its work in our life, God's agenda for us as we read 1 Corinthians together in these uh, weeks ahead is to strip out all that old, tangled, confused wiring of the world and rewire our spiritual systems with the simple, clear truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so 1 Corinthians deals with real issues that we all struggle with even now. And what work of grace might uh, God give us and in our life as a church, as we come under the teaching of this book? So I want you, over these next weeks and months, to pray with me that God will do that work and begin changing our hearts and rewiring us uh, by His word in First Corinthians. So let's get started. Turn with me to verse 10. And we have an appeal for unity, uh, an appeal for unity. In verse 10, Paul sets out the what I think is the fundamental theme of the whole letter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In fact, most Everything which follows here through chapter 4, everything that we just sang about, grows out of Paul's appeal here in this verse. That there may be no division, and that the church be united. The division within the church stands in sharp contrast to the ideal that was set forth in the previous verse. If you go back to verse 9, which we covered last week, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And sadly, the Corinthians aren't characterized by their fellowship. They're characterized by their division. And when Paul had left, they were united around a common fellowship with their risen Savior. But now they're divided into factions, identifying with their favorite teachers. And Paul doesn't use a harsh rebuke here as he does in Galatians. Rather, he appeals to the members of the church as his brothers, which is a term of endearment that he uses some 39 times in this epistle. Paul knows these people personally. He's been called into fellowship uh, with them through Christ, through the gospel. And he's making an appeal to them with Christ's authority, with which he now as an apostle speaks. And his appeal is that all of you agree. Literally, it says, speak the same thing. This is a classical way of talking about being united. And the problem is that various divisions have formed within the church and have destroyed their unity. The word Paul uses here for division is schismata, from which we get our word schism. It literally means splits. And in this context, it probably should be understood in the sense of factions or cliques, although I'm not sure those are strong enough terms. And it has formed in the church as people begin following various of their favorite teachers. So we'll see in verse 12. And instead of being divided, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He uses a word, a verb, that means restoring something to its proper condition. It's the same verb used in Matthew chapter 4 where James and John were mending their nets. It's also used uh, in literature, Greek literature at that time for a shoulder that's dislocated and then popped back into its socket. So essentially Paul is telling the Corinthians that you're not to be torn apart by schism but mended and knit together in love not to be a church whose members are put out of joint, so to speak, uh, but one that's whole and mobile, ready for action. The Corinthians are to repair their fractured unity by restoring their thinking and refocusing on the doctrine of Christ, not the personalities of those teaching them. And notice how far that unity is to penetrate. It's not to be superficial or shallower, just on the surface. They're to confess the same truths, share the same convictions. Their unity is to be founded on a common commitment to a body of truth, confessed and preached in their midst. But it goes even deeper. Unity touches not just on what they said, but on what they think, on their very thoughts. He wants them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. They're to discipline their minds and submit even their private judgments to the authority of the word of God. This is not a merely verbal, superficial consensus. This is no go-along-to-get-along sort of deal. This is a deep, thorough, root-and-branch, head-and-heart, word-and-deed unity. So now you can sort of see the dimensions of this problem facing the Corinthian church. Because division, after all, is fueled by Ego, and it's easy. But unity, the kind of which Paul is calling us to here, is really hard work. And that's a tough call to hear from the Apostle Paul. Paul understands that. So now he takes time to sort of call out the obstacles to unity. He calls out the obstacles. That's the next blank there, verses 11 and 12. He's going to tackle the issues head on. And I think it's fascinating, of all the problems confronting the Corinthian church, and there's a bunch of them, and they're pretty serious, but number one on Paul's list, the first thing he wants to address is the problem of division and disunity. Division and disunity are the primary obstacles to unity. And so as we read these next verses, actually all the way through verse 16, I want you to listen for two things in particular, uh, which will be the next two points. So, uh, first of all, Paul's diagnosis, he tells us about the problem to be avoided, this serious problem of division uh, in the church. And then secondly, which will be the next point, Paul's prescription, which is the principle that we have to apply, which comes out of the rhetorical questions in verse 13, which we have to apply if we're going to overcome division and establish unity. So first, Paul's diagnosis, starting in verse 11. says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They're quarreling, bickering, about the respective merits of their particular party there's division and schism tearing the church apart and there's two factors in particular that are causing these tears in the fabric of christian fellowship in the first place you can see this on the surface of verse 12 there's a cult of personality the cult of personality but then standing behind the cult of personality giving it its power and its force is what we would call the cult of personal pride. So The cult of personality and the cult of personal pride. Both of these are found in verse 12. So first, cult of personality. These groups are claiming to be the standard bearers for a particular much-loved leader or approach to the Christian life. And first of all, there's the Paul party. Paul's the one who planted the church in Corinth. And these folks claim to be the stalwart defenders of the original vision. We're the Paul people. Loyal to the good old days and the good old ways. It's not, not how Paul would have done it. It's not how Paul would have said it. Things were so much better when Paul was here. Those are the expressions of the Paul party. But then in addition to the Paul party, another party arises within the Corinthian congregation on the Apollos party. Now, Apollos came from the city of Alexandria. Uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, uh, tells us that he's an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, enthusiastic about spiritual things. He accurately taught the things of Jesus. And Apollos eventually makes his way to Corinth, and there he helps those who through grace have believed. And he powerfully refutes the Jews in public by using the scriptures to show that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos is a great preacher. He's a skilled orator. He's a passionate expositor of the Bible. And the church at Corinth is blessed through his ministry. And the members of this party, you know, they're always downloading Apollos' sermon on their iPhone. They're retweeting his best quotes on their Twitter feed. They're all about Apollos. Apollos is the grid through which they measure every other ministry and everyone else's Christian life. That's the Apollos party. Then comes along another group within the fellowship, the party of Cephas. At some point, people have moved to Corinth and, and apparently joined the church who weren't influenced by Paul or Apollos, but uh, presumably were led to faith in Christ or came under the influence, particularly of Cephas, otherwise known as the Apostle Peter. They're unfamiliar with Apollos' ministry, and they don't know Paul, and for them, Cephas is the key guy. After all, he's kind of the head apostle, right? I mean, let's follow him. But there's one more division in the church. These guys, I think, are actually... And you wouldn't read this at first glance, but I think these guys are the worst of the bunch. These are the holier than thou, no creed but Christ crowd, and they are, of course, the Jesus party. And they pretend to stand above everyone else. You people are all squabbling about Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but we're the Jesus people. We get it right. So there's this growing rift between these different groups using Paul and Apollos and Peter, even Jesus, like brand names or badges. Not simply to identify a set of convictions, but to belittle the others who aren't in their group. Why are they doing that? Why do people still do that today? And that gets to the second cause here of division. Behind the cult of personality, there's the cult of personal pride. Listen again to the text, because there's one thing at Corinth that actually unites them all. There's one thing they all have in common. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. What is it that they all have in common? Not their favorite leader, but their massive ego. They seek to enlist their favorite leader, attach their own names to the names of their chosen one in order somehow to borrow some of their perceived glory, to attach themselves to the glamour of this person that he might make them look good. And we've all heard people do that, haven't we? Drop a name here or there as you establish your credentials. Maybe you've done it yourself sometime. I know I have. You're letting folks know that, you know, you're on a first-name basis with that preacher or that author or this leader. You know how it goes. I remember when Dr. So-and-so was saying to me the other day, blah, 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 blah. You know Dr. So-and-so, don't you? Oh, you don't. Well, let me introduce you to him sometime. Just stick with me. Uh, You can meet all the cool people. All about me. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Behind the cult of personality lurks this cult of personal pride, and it's tearing the Corinthians apart. And the Apostle Paul answers them by refocusing their attention on the source of their unity, the source of their unity, starting at verse. 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So now we come to the second part, Paul's prescription. The principle that we have to apply, which must be applied, if we're going to overcome division and establish unity. The very thought of division leads Paul to ask three rhetorical questions in verse 13. All of which expose the foolishness of such thinking. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So the first question, is Christ divided? Gets at the logical consequence of what happens from this division. Ironically, the body of Christ is being torn apart by those who are claiming to be followers of Christ. Is Christ divided? A divided church means a divided Christ. And yet, if you have Christ, you have all of him. Christ can't be divided. You can't have half a person. This incidentally throws light on some common phrases you may hear. Somebody may say, well, meaning, you know, that they want more of Christ. You can't. You either have them or you don't. Rather, we should be allowing Christ to have more of us. We're the divided ones, not Jesus. We're the ones that Christ has to make whole so that we can become more like him. I think another way of understanding this question is to apportion out the body of Christ in the sense of uh, one group gets Paul, another Apollos, another Peter, another gets Christ as though he were just another choice. And I think Paul wants to know, what are you thinking? How can you consider putting the Lord Jesus Christ on the same plane as me and Peter and Apollos? That sounds blasphemous. Whenever we lower Jesus to our level, we're kind of doing the same thing. And Paul says, stop. His second uh, argument against disunity, if anything, is even more vivid. He says, was Paul crucified for you? I've actually said that to a number of pastors in terrible church situations where I've had to remind them that Jesus already died for that church. You don't have to. Did Paul perform the work of redemption on the cross, atoning for the sins of these people? Again, when you put Christ in the same breath as someone else, you're bringing him down and raising that other person up. And at some root level, uh, even if it's not intended, there is a blasphemous character when we do that. And Paul is challenging the Corinthians to drop their cult of personality and fix their attention solely on Christ. Once again, that's the focus of his message when he preached to them. First Corinthians 2 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message which attracted them uh, from the beginning. They owed their salvation to Christ. It's Christ who died for their sins and brought them forgiveness. Not Apollos, not Peter, not Paul. They know the reality of being redeemed. And whenever Christians give our allegiance to any human personality, such as a gifted preacher, they have taken their eyes off Christ. And there will inevitably be disunity. Jesus Christ is the only one who can unite men and women, and he does so through the cross, so that we can come to God only via the cross of Christ, and we never move on from the cross. Paul's third argument against disunity is even more about their allegiance. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? To be baptized in the name of a person is to give one's allegiance to that person. It's to be covered by that person to be placed under their care and protection it's to be identified as belonging to that person did paul baptize anyone in his name of course not this is why we baptize you in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit so that you know and everyone else knows that you belong to the triune god who rules and reigns over this world and the next Paul expresses relief that he personally baptized very few of the Corinthians so that this confusion wouldn't be widespread. But it is this question, or were you baptized in the name of Paul, to which the answer is obviously no, which leads Paul to conclude in these next verses, 14 through 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Apparently, it was his practice, following the example of Christ, to delegate baptism, which was done in the name of Christ, to the officers of the church. In theory, to avoid the very problem that Paul's dealing with here. somebody saying, I was baptized by so-and-so, so so I'm a follower of so-and-so. It also says that Paul baptized a household. Serves as important evidence for infant baptism. The factions in Corinth may have been based in part upon the fact that individuals were baptized by the people just mentioned, except Christ, of course. This has led to the unfortunate situation in which baptized individuals formed an illegitimate connection to the person who baptized them. This is why Paul is thankful that he baptized so few of them so that people couldn't claim to be baptized into Paul's name. And so then he asserts, verse 17, in this section, these are the key verses, the first one and the last one. He asserts, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The office of apostle is centered in his responsibility of preaching the gospel in an evangelistic context by planting churches. With the day-to-day responsibility for church life assigned to the officers of the church, ministers of word and sacrament, elders, deacons. And notice how Paul is concerned. The Corinthians realize the preaching of the cross doesn't center in words of eloquent Wisdom. Or as some translations have it, cleverness in speech. This comment may have been added by Paul because people often like the preacher more than the message. That's true. I remember when Pope John Paul II uh, was alive and he came to America. And he basically told us, stop doing all this sinful stuff that's against the rules of the church. And people who were doing all that sinful stuff we're like, he's so wonderful. We love him. I was like, you don't do any of the stuff he says. You disagree with every single word that comes out of his mouth. I'll be so nice. And I was like, this is just bizarre. But it happens, not just on that grand a scale, but on a small scale, too. It happens regularly. People will overlook what is said because of who is saying it. And often, the power of personality overrides the power of the gospel. The Corinthians are preoccupied with wisdom. In Greek culture, that's a reference to a skilled orator or a storyteller that can keep your attention. But there's a big difference between preaching Christ and impressing people with wisdom. To a Greek audience, the cross is an unpopular message. It's about shame and scandal centering in a crucified God. But the cross is the divinely appointed means by which God saves sinners. Preaching which softens or weakens the cross. Nullifies the power of the cross. By drawing people to the preacher, not to the Savior. And as Paul sees it. Christian preaching centers in a particular message, the doing and dying of Jesus, however scandalous that may sound. The gospel's not grounded in eloquence or rhetorical skills of the preacher. In fact, thank God, in fact, it's the attraction to the styles and abilities of these various preachers um, that's causing all the problem. It's the root of the problem in Corinth. People like the preachers more than they like the gospel. And so they broke into factions without considering the content of what was being preached, and they ended up dividing. And Paul says, this must stop. Members of this church need to be united. So what then do we take away from this section of 1 Corinthians? Paul's warning to the Corinthians about the ease in which divisive factions need to be heard. It's here, I think, that we see the wisdom of being a confessional church. What does that mean? Reformed Christians don't say, or they shouldn't, we follow John Calvin. Because the officers don't subscribe to Calvin's views or to his theology. Instead, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, plug for the Sunday school class on that. But by confessing a common faith, Spelled out in great detail in the Westminster Confession, we have a built-in defense against division. We confess a common faith. We believe the same doctrines. Every officer has agreed with this. That said, we are just as sinful as the Corinthians. We are just as prone to factions and divisions. And I think as Reformed Christians, we... We have to be really careful about identifying too closely with an influential teacher or writer. You know, when I was a younger Christian, there were people that were like, I love R.C. Sproul. You know, no matter what is said, I have to check it against what R.C. said. Today, it's probably Tim Keller. Oh, what does Keller say? You know, and... We have to be careful. Those are both brilliant guys, influential teachers. They have written and preached many wonderful gospel truths. But I think both of them would say, what are you doing by following me? I'm not the point. And uh, we have to direct our allegiance to that doctrine regarding the person and work of Christ found in that confession which spells out the content of our faith and to which we agree. And so when we say we're reformed, we're confessing a common faith defined in the Westminster Confession, which we believe summarizes the Bible's teaching about Christ, his gospel, and his church. Our common doctrine unites us. You know, sometimes it seems hard to apply passages like this one. You know, this portion of Paul's letter may seem foreign to some of us. I mean, when's the last time you heard someone claim to be of Paul or of Peter or of Apollos? And yet, when we look more closely, we begin to see our lives and our church parallels the church that Paul addressed in many ways. To begin with, Paul said a a few things, uh, two in particular about the church, I think are very important for us to apply to our lives, and to our church right now today. First, the church today is blessed in countless ways, just as the Corinthians were. We've been set apart as God's people. We have many blessings the rest of the world does not enjoy. Chief among those is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has blessed us with spiritual gifts and graces that not only encourage us, but encourage us to encourage each other. As we wait for the Lord's return. And although the Corinthians faced all kinds of difficulties. Paul rejoiced in God's blessing. He encouraged them to rejoice in God's blessing. No matter what difficulties the church faces. We should always approach them with this awareness. Of all the blessings that were given through the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we receive from the Lord. Second, those blessings bond us together. Our utter dependence on Christ and his power to redeem us is what unites us in fellowship. Most of us don't value our brothers and sisters because we forget that we and they are all equally in need of Christ and the power of his death and resurrection. It should go without saying, but it doesn't, so I'm going to say it that churches shouldn't allow their internal politics and disagreements to tear apart their fellowship. But these problems arise so often that it bears repeating. When we have divisions in our churches, we need to evaluate why those divisions happened. Are we legitimately separating ourselves from those who deny the gospel, or are we dividing and quarreling because of personal pride? And there are so many divisions that eventually, however they started, they just end up with somebody having to win. And by keeping Christ central, we can avoid many of the factions that develop around persons and secondary doctrines. Perhaps by remembering our call uh, to be holy, we can refrain from actions that damage our church's witness in the community. We need to refocus our attention. On the blessings we've received forgiveness, salvation, uh, spiritual knowledge, spiritual gifts, friendship, union with Christ, and unity in Christ. If we keep our disagreements in perspective, we won't be so willing to divide the church for reasons that are contrary to the gospel. That is, after all, where the power lies not in the preacher, but in the Christ. Who is preached, not in oratory or in sacraments or liturgy or ritual or form or style, but in the Christ who meets us as we gather in his name. So let the good news of Jesus, what he's done for you out of his love for you, fill your soul again. and, And when that happens, you'll find your ego begins to die. And with it, our divisions start to crumble. And we'll find the ground level. At the foot of the cross. Isn't that the case when we come back to the cross? The ground is level at the cross. It means we're all even. We're all the same. We're all forgiven sinners looking to our Savior. We look to Jesus bearing the condemnation that we deserve. And see that we are, all of us, without hope, saving God's sovereign mercy. We're wretched sinners deserving the wrath of God. Nothing to boast in there. And then we look again at the cross and see him pouring himself out for us. And because he did, we can be saved. He's done it all. And I take no glory for it, and neither can you. And therefore, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. As we fill our gaze with Jesus... Ego dies and divisions crumble. But because we're all self-centered sinners, the only way we can be united is to keep our eyes on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, was raised for our justification so that he might save us to be members of his body, which is his church. And because he came to save his people, we need to agree and be united in the same mind and the same judgment by confessing a common faith. We avoid division by seeking that which is best for his body, even if it means putting our agendas aside. And therefore, we need to keep the gospel before us. Jesus died to redeem us as individuals whom he joins to his church. Seeking to divide that body for which Christ died uh, to create is a really serious thing. And it's because Jesus died on the cross for us as individuals and for us as a church, that Paul can write to you and to me, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul's not just appealing to the church in Corinth. He's also appealing to the church here to you, and to me. And we need to take his appeal seriously. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord, we confess that often our own pride and ego have led us to speak and act and think and harbor attitudes and cultivate a a disposition that's hostile to Christian unity. So we come together this morning back to the cross, to the level ground at the foot of the cross. Would you strip us of all boasting? Show us the bankruptcy of our own claims um, to fame or greatness. Instead, capture our hearts and minds with the greatness and goodness and sufficiency of Jesus. He is enough, altogether sufficient for our needs. As remember that, would you unite us as we celebrate our union with Christ and our union, therefore, with each other in him. Forgive us. Work in these weeks and months ahead of us through 1 Corinthians. Teach us who we really are in Christ. Strengthen us as we seek to live out these words for your glory and your honor and your praise. As we begin to be rewired by the gospel, would you make use of us in ways surpassing our expectations? In our community, our workplace, our friends, our family, all over grant that we may live like people called to be saints, united in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. There we go. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. See you next week.